0: And my on Well, thank you so much. That was a, a very beautiful and unexpected introduction. Thank you. Um, I'm going to get right into it today because there is a lot that God has really put on my heart, and I really I'm really excited for what I think God wants to speak through today's meeting. And this is something which it's been my entire year of Bible study and how I've really connected with God this year has all led to this sermon, and so I am so excited to be able to share it with you, and so today is Movie Sunday 3, Trust Your Screenwriter, and you know, you might ask, oh, well, what is a screenwriter, and if you do ask that, I'll say, great question, and that's actually the first thing we're going to explore, Um, (laughs) thank you, Jordan, what's a screenwriter, fantastic question. Um, So a screenwriter is the person who has the role of writing the story, writing the script, writing the film, writing the play. They are the one who sit down and actually construct the story. They craft the story. They decide what's going to happen, what characters will be in the story, who's going to say what, who will be in what scene, where will scenes take place, what actions will be there, what objects will be in the scene. They decide everything and they have to write it all out for it to then be turned into a film or presented as a play. And, you know, I knew that there were screenwriters in movies, um, but this year a book was recommended to me, and we can put the slide up on there, um, called Save the Cat. Um, I don't know if anyone else has read this book. I highly recommend it. It is a book called The Last Book on Screenwriting That You'll Ever Need. And I started reading this book at the end of 2022, And it completely opened my eyes to what a screenwriter does. And not just a, okay, this is a screenwriter's role, but really the responsibility that a screenwriter has to a film. And it showed me the role and the responsibility the screenwriter has. And while I was studying the book for a film, um, God really spoke to me and he said, if you understand the responsibility of a screenwriter for a film... He said, do you also trust me to have that same responsibility in your life? If you are watching a film, you are trusting that screenwriter to do their job and to carry out their responsibility. And he said, are you doing the same for me when I'm writing your life? And I, I remember sitting at my desk and like, oh, my goodness, God, I've never thought of that. And, you know, I was talking to my dad, Pastor Peter, last night, and he was saying how everyone knows when you're watching a movie... You know that movies are crafted stories. You know that someone has come and they have crafted this amazing story and everything's playing together. But often when we come to life, it can feel very much like, well, life just happens. And so, no, there is no craftsmanship of life. It's just life is happening all around us. And he said, but when you look at God's word, you realize, no, that's not how God intended life to be. God actually is wanting to be the screenwriter who's crafting our story. God wants to be that person who's looking at the big picture, who's taking on that responsibility of saying, don't you write your story, let me write your story. And so that's why today we're going to be looking at a screenwriter for a film and then saying, how can we then translate that to God being the screenwriter of our story, of our life? You know, there's a scripture which says, God causes all things to work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So it means that when we do, when we love God and when we embrace his purpose, we are actually enabling him to be the screenwriter of our life and to say, use everything to write our story. So and so today, one of the things which I loved, loved, loved in this book, and I have read it and reread it and reread it, is the power of the setup. And that's what we're gonna be exploring today, is a screenwriter's responsibility for the power of the setup in a good story. And a screen, you know, a good script, a good story will be filled with setups and payoffs. If it's not filled with those, it's not a good script. And in the same way, God, the master screenwriter, wants to fill our lives with setups and payoffs. Good. So in that, we will be looking at three different specific techniques that are from Save the Cat that are used in screenwriting and then looking at how God does that. So the first screenwriting technique we'll be looking at is something called Chekhov's gun. Um, I don't know how many are familiar with Chekhov's gun. (laughs) And it's a quote from Anton Chekhov, who was a very famous um, writer from a long, long time ago. And he says, if in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. So in terms of screenwriting, this is one like the golden rules that every screenwriter knows you must follow. And you can look at that and go... Like, first act, what does that even mean? Okay, so to understand what Anton is teaching us, um, you know, a script for a movie will be maybe about 100 pages. On average, you can have longer ones. Some like Aaron Sorkin, he can be up to 200 pages. But you'll be looking at about 100 pages. And to take those 100 pages, what they do is they break it into sections and each section will have a general rule of story to follow, and that just helps the story at a good pace, so it doesn't mean it's like a hundred pages of slodging through story. You break it into acts, and those acts will help you keep at a good rhythm, so it's just a screenwriting technique. Um, so for a movie, common movies, three acts, a modern movie will be nine acts, um, plays, two acts, TV show, five acts, but um, Save the Cat is specifically on film screenwriting, so we're going to be using the example of a three-act structure. So everything today, when we talk about Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, we are thinking in terms of a movie. You have your start, you have your middle, you have your ending. Now, Aaron Sorokin, who's one of the most famous screenwriters around, he, um, I watched a masterclass that he did on screenwriting, and he said the basic way to understand it is, Act 1, you chase your hero up a tree. Act 2, you throw rocks at them. And in Act 3, you get them down. So in the simplest terms... Act one, this is what happens. We're going to get them in a tree, they're stuck. Act two, we're going to throw rocks at them so it's harder. And act three, we will get them down. So every film will follow that general gist of rhythm. So back to Chekhov, Anton Chekhov. He is effectively telling writers, if in act three, you're going to have your hero shoot the bad guy with the gun, you must introduce that gun back in act one. So what he's saying is that you must get to Act 3 and have your hero holding a gun, but in order for your hero to have a gun in Act 3, you must introduce the gun early on. You can't just get to Act 3 and say, oh, um, look, I actually had a gun in my pocket this whole time. That's really bad screenwriting, and that's really bad. So you need to be planning ahead thinking, hey, I need him to have a gun. I need to find a way his grandfather is going to give him a gun in Act 1. There's gonna be a gun on the shelf in act one. There's gonna be something introduced in act one, so then in act three, he can hold the gun and we go, ah, oh, he's gonna use the gun to shoot him. Yeah. Very clever. Because the responsibility of the scriptwriter is you must say, I need to know who and what is needed in act three, and I need to introduce them in acts one and two. Yeah. That is the screenwriter's responsibility. That's not the actor's responsibility. Yeah. Tom Cruise doesn't get to Mission Impossible 34, film the ending, go, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. No, 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 that's not his responsibility. That's not the director's responsibility. It is the responsibility of the screenwriter to ensure that the gun is already in the possession of a hero by Act Three. That is their responsibility. And, you know, before we start looking at a scripture, um, just to help you understand it in terms of a movie, we're going to look at a movie example. So the first movie we're going to be using is, um, you know, there's a famous director called Martin Scorsese, and he has a phrase which is, this is cinema, which um, he is quite particular about what movies should be and shouldn't be. And he says that we need to find the most pure art form, and that needs to be cinema. He hates superhero movies. He said, no, we need to get back to pure art. And, you know, I'm pretty sure this would be one of his favorite movies, And that is cloudy with the chance of meatballs. It is a pure cinematic experience and a piece of literature. Um, You know, regardless of what you think of the movie, I'm not even saying it's a great movie, but it is a fantastic example of um, Chekhov's gun. And whatever you think of this movie, we must salute the screenwriter to say he ensured Act 3 had the gun through a very creative way. So we're going to put the... I'm um, scenes on the screen now. Have you ever
1: felt like you were a little bit different? Like you had something unique to offer the world if you could just get people to see it. Then you know exactly how it felt to be me. Go ahead, Flint. What is the number one problem facing our community today? untied shoelaces, which is why I've invented a laceless, alternative foot covering. Spray on
0: Shoes! Whoa. How are you're gonna get him off, nerd! <laughs> what a freak! He wants to be smart, but that...
1: Have you ever felt like you were...
0: Okay. So that was the start, the first scenes of *Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs*, where we meet our hero Flint Lockwood, a child inventor who, who wants to make his mark on the world. And we watch that scene where he gets humiliated in front of his class by inventing spray-on shoes, which, as you could see, don't actually come off. And so now we're going to flip to Act Three, when Flint Lockwood has grown up and has invented a machine which takes clouds and turns them into food. Um, as I said, it's an interesting film. Um, but at the end of the film, the machine has now overloaded, and now the food that is going to like destroy planet Earth because of those huge hot dogs and hamburgers, and it's just interesting. But at the very end, Flint Lockwood gets to the machine and needs to overpower it, and we'll play that scene. So that was the the end scenes of Clarity the Chance of Meatballs. So in Act One we've seen Flint invent this machine. In Act Two this machine has grown in power and overloaded and overloaded until finally in Act Three it is now completely gone wrong and it's going to destroy their town. And so what happens in that scene is Flint gets there and he can't shut the machine down. He can't. He tries to turn it off but it doesn't work. And so what he does is he gets the gun that was introduced in Act 1, uses spray-on shoes, and that causes the machine to self-implode. Now, as I said, I'm not saying the movie is a piece of you know, literature, but you do have to, re- like, recognise they have completely followed Chekhov's rule of saying we needed something in Act 3, so we introduced it right at the beginning. And the thing is that this movie, it's not a movie about a guy who invented spray-on shoes. It's about a guy who invents a machine. The shoes was not the whole point of the movie. It is simply the weapon that they put in his hand so that in Act 3, he can overpower the weapon. Because, um, you know, one of the great things about um, Chekhov's gun is that Flint Lockwood and the audience go through this entire movie unaware that he already has in his possession the key he needs for the victory. You go through this whole movie watching him try to figure out how do I overpower this machine, unaware that in his pocket this entire time has been the very key he needs. Now, for sake of time, we're not going to show more clips, but I will put up some photos to show you how this is used in every film you'll find. Um, Okay, so here's some examples. In the Hunger Games movies, At the start of the movie, you're introduced to poisonous berries. In the end, they use those berries to overpower the capital. In Home Alone, at the start, you see that his big brother has a spider. At the end of the film, he uses that spider to escape the sticky bandits. In Toy Story 3, the aliens are obsessed with the claw game. And finally, at the end of the movie, the aliens can use a claw to save their friends. In Back to the Future, the clock tower is introduced at the very start. Finally, it's that same clock tower which enables him to come back to the present. In Mission Impossible, in pretty much every movie, they use masks which can change their appearance. You see them using the mask at the start. At the end, they use that same technology to win the battle. In Tangled, you find out that at the start of the movie, if she cuts her hair, she loses her power. At the end of the movie, they cut her hair so she can escape. In Captain America, they use a phrase, I'm with you till the end of the line at the start of the movie, At the end of the movie, they use that same line to help Bucky come out of his trance. And um, I've actually added one more in purely because there was a a request from someone in the front row for me to include her favorite movie in my sermon. In Elf, Buddy tells them that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. At the end of the movie, they sing so that Christmas cheer can help Santa's sleigh escape. That's there just for you, Judith. Even Elf follows the rule of Chekhov's gun. I'm sorry. Um, But it is true that once you're actually aware of this screenwriting rule, you will see it in films everywhere. Just the other day I was watching something with Jordan and a character just pulled out this book. He's like, oh, this is the user manual. And Jordan and I look at each other and go, aha, that's Chekhov's gun. Sure enough, at the end of the movie, they need that manual to see how to overcome the machine. Um... And it was through learning about this this screenwriting rule and learning that it is the responsibility of the screenwriter to ensure that your hero has what they need for their victory that God really began to speak to me. And he said, in the same way, he said, it's God's responsibility to ensure I get to act three with what I need. He said, it is not your responsibility to find the weapon you need in act three. He said, you need to stop looking around saying, what have I got? What have I got? He said, trust me that it's already in your possession. He said, if you get to a closed door, if you get to an impossible dream, if you get to a mountain, you need to trust me that I have already placed within your life everything you need for its fulfillment. You know, a screenwriter doesn't get to act three and then go, oh, I forgot he has to overpower this machine. No, a screenwriter is always thinking about act three. You are constantly thinking about Act 3 when you're writing page 1. You are always looking there. And in the same way, God is always looking at our Act 3 whilst we're living out Act 1 and 2. And um, when God was speaking to me, this, he said, you know, I start looking at movies through this filter of seeing Chekhov's gun everywhere, and now I can't help it, but see, oh, that's Chekhov's gun, that's Chekhov's gun. Um, and God actually challenged me. He said, start reading your Bible like that. He said, start reading your Bible and looking out for me setting up a key for victory later on. And so this entire year, I've been reading the Bible like that, and it has just opened my eyes, being like, God, you are a master screenwriter. And today, we're going to be looking at the scripture, um, and the scriptures of David, of King David. Um, so we're going to put them up on the screen from 1 Samuel. And so as we would say, you know, in a movie, Technique <laughs> we will say, okay, act one, here we go. So it says, one day he said, Samuel, I've rejected Saul, who was the king, and I refuse to let him be king any longer. Stop feeling sad about him, put some olive oil in a small container and go visit a man named Jesse, who lives in Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be my king. One by one, Jesse told all seven of his sons to go over to Samuel. Finally, Samuel said, Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these young men. Do you have any other sons? Yes, Jesse answered. My youngest son, David, is out taking care of the sheep send for him, Samuel said. We won't start the ceremony until he gets there. Jesse sent for David. He was a healthy, good-looking boy with a sparkle in his eyes. And as soon as David came, the Lord said to Samuel, he's the one. Get up and pour the olive oil on his head. Okay, so act one, we've got David, a regular shepherd boy living a regular shepherd boy life. And suddenly something extraordinary happens. A prophet comes and says, you are to be the king of Israel. In screenwriting um, terms, we would call this the catalyst, the moment where everything changes for this character. Suddenly, David now has an assignment, a dream, a calling on his life, which is beyond anything he had ever imagined and something completely impossible. He is not born into royalty. He is not born in royal blood. But God has told him, this is your calling. Okay, so then we break into the next act, which is a little bit further on. And it says, the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord was terrifying him. It's an evil spirit from God that's frightening you, Saul's officials told him. Your Majesty, let us go and look for someone who's good at playing the harp. He can play for you whenever the evil spirit from God bothers you, and you'll feel better. All right, Saul answered. Find me someone who's good at playing the harp and bring him here. A man named Jesse, who lives in Bethlehem, has a son who can play the harp, one official said. He's a brave warrior, he's good looking, he can speak well, and the Lord is with him. Saul sent a messenger to Jesse, tell your son David to leave your sheep and come here to me. So Jesse loaded a donkey with bread and a goat's skin full of wine, and he told David to take the donkey and a young goat to Saul. David sent to, um, went to Saul and started working for him. Saul liked him so much that he put David in charge of carrying his weapons. Not long after this, Saul sent another message to Jesse, I really like David, please let him stay with me. Okay, so when I'm reading the scripture now, looking through the filter of God as my screenwriter, I just read that where it says, Saul and the palace is in need of a harp player. And they say, oh, Jesse has a son who plays the harp. And I read that and go, God, you have just set up a pathway for David to get into the palace. It's not just a coincidence that they needed a harp player and David happened to be a harp player. No, that was God." setting up David's future by saying, you're going to play the harp, and one day it's a harp player that they'll be looking for. You know, it's funny because Act 1, in our minds, begins when Samuel came and anointed David to be king. But, you know, God had been writing David's story for a long time before that. When David was a boy, God said, hey, you should start playing the harp. You should get really good at playing the harp. You should really develop this skill. And David did that unaware that that was actually the weapon that would be used to bring him into the palace. You know, it's amazing because it's not even anything that correlates to being king. It's not like a, you need to study so you're a really good soldier so that you can be put in charge of one of the areas in the army. It's not saying you need to become really good at helping a king. It's actually something so separate. It's like spray on shoes, something which has no correlation to what you're looking at. But God is saying, I'm going to place within your life the very thing that will be needed to take you into the victory. And, you know, there's a quote in um, the Screenwriter's Bible where it says, in most Bond films, Q gives James the gadgets he'll later use in the movie. They can be pretty ridiculous, but as long as they are established early, we accept them. And that way, we're not relying on James Bond to just overpower the villain. We're actually relying on him having been given a gadget that is perfectly designed for the exact situation he's in. You know, it's not saying we just need our hero to be more powerful. It's saying, no, a screenwriter will give him a weapon that is more powerful. You know, it's, it's like, a, you know, the old TV show Batman, when they would have the bat belt. And in every situation, Batman had exactly what he needed. If it's shark repellent spray, he had it. If it was spray on shoes, God says, I'll give it. It's the ability to play the harp. God says, hey, you're going to have what you need. That's so good. And I'd love to, um, we're just going to listen to a testimony here which is I don't know how many of you were here for Movie Sunday last December when we had um, a special guest, which is Christopher Palaha, a Christian actor from L.A. And he's got an amazing testimony, which I've heard many times. But again, looking through the filter of a screenwriter, God really spoke to me about it in preparation for this message. So I'd love to share it over. Um, This is when Chris Palaha shared this testimony on an interview, um, and then we're going to talk about it. I'll put the video up for you now
1: where we were happened to be in front of this store and in the basement this man was trying to burn his restaurant down for insurance purposes and Catherine was uh, i was between her and the traffic and i felt the prompting of the holy spirit and i moved and i switched sides with her and i said i don't know why but i feel better on this side of you and about a block later the building exploded and we were caught in this blast um it was 120 stitches for me and because i moved I was wearing this thick sheepshear leather jacket and cords and boots, and I basically eclipsed all the glass that probably more than likely would have killed Catherine. Where we were happened to be in front of the so store that, um, and in the basement this man was
0: So that's a, a very quick overview of a testimony which happened 27 years ago when you know, he, he should have died, the girl he was with should have died, when the building exploded. And I've heard him tell that story, and he said like that was a really key moment in his relationship to God, realizing God had just done a miracle and saved his life. And, you know, I've heard him share the testimony before, but he, he'd often mentioned how he just felt from God to switch places. And the other thing he said was that he was wearing a really thick jacket. And it always kind of stood out with me. It was like these two pivotal things happened which saved his life. And earlier this year, he spoke more in depth about the testimony. And he actually just shared, again, just a little clip about the moments when he was getting ready to go out with the girl that night. And I hear this and I'm like, God, you have just set up the very weapon needed to spare his life. So we'll play the second video now.
1: Um, it was like an Indian summer. So she was good, but she didn't have a jacket. So I, borrow, I let her borrow my my, my oh, a red windbreaker. She had a white t-shirt on and some jeans and tennis shoes. And then I was overdressed for the night because I liked this jacket that I had, which was a sheep shear leather jacket. That had this collar that popped it up. Um, it was like an Indian summer. So, okay, so she was again, good. like
0: just a very quick overview, but basically, he's just said that he was overdressed for the weather, but he just had his favorite jacket on. And, you know, I listened to that, and all I can hear is God, in that moment when he put that jacket on, he was completely unaware of what was about to take place in his life. He had no idea that that jacket was going to save his life. Yeah. Yet, God already knew what was about to take place in Act 3. So God ensured he had the weapon he needed right then. And now we'll play the th- the last video where you hear now exactly why that jacket was so important to his life being spared.
1: We pulled into St. Vincent's and we got out of the cab. The guy drove, we didn't have to pay him because it goes unpaid. And we walked in and I was so I was literally covered in blood that the minute I walked in, they sat us into an emergency room, full full medical attention. The nurses came in, washed off. It ended up being 120 stitches. So there's a, a cut on my hand that looks like a, it looks like a dancer or a, a wild horse. There's this thing here. It's like a long scar, and there's this. And what's interesting is, everywhere that was exposed, so my eye got blocked by this hand, my jugular got blocked by this arm, and then what was exposed got clipped. And then the rest of my body, that that you sheep shirt that I was you had Dylan's jacket on. Dylan's jacket was like armor. And so I eclipsed all of the glass that would have just eviscerated Catherine, just completely annihilated her. So she didn't get hit at all. She had one little piece uh, hit her in the head. So she had a little nick in her head that didn't take stitches or anything to heal up. And we pulled into St. Vincent's and we got out of the
0: camera. So, you know, as I was watching that video yesterday, like I've heard him share the testimony before, but God really began to speak to me when he said, you know, he had no idea what was about to take place. He had no idea that that building was about to explode. But for me, it fills me with such confidence in God, knowing that God had already arranged exactly what was needed for his life to be spared. And something as simple as wearing a jacket that was too big for the weather actually saved his life. And, you know, when he put his hands up to show how his eye and everything was saved, I'm like, God's like, God, if one hand had been down, he would be dead. If he, what happens if he hadn't switched places, she would be dead. If all these things, and I'm like, suddenly I just had such faith arise in my heart, like, God, you arranged it so perfectly so that he had a jacket he shouldn't have been wearing. He switched places, which didn't make sense, because God knew in Act Three, a building's gonna explode, and so I'm gonna ensure it does not harm you. You know, God is so faithful. He says, hey, you could be in an act three you don't want to be in, but I'm going to ensure you have exactly what you need to walk through in victory. And, you know, in that interview, he went on to share how um, Chris Palaha's mom is a nurse, and when he was in the emergency room, they called her, and she spoke to the nurse on duty and said, I need you to wake up the top surgeon to come and do his face. And she said, don't let anyone else do it. And he said she argued with him until finally they're like, okay. And they went and woke up um, the top plastic surgeon and said, you have to come and do this surgery. And he said, it's interesting that his hands, like just someone in the hospital did, and he said his hands, like, he said, it's, you know, it's horrible because they've like stitched it together. And he said, you can see the stitches. And he said, there's scars everywhere. And he said for his face, it was like four layers of, to try to reconstruct the muscles and then the skin. And he's like, if the other person had done it, even though, yes, he'd be alive, like he would have never become an actor. He said he never would have had a career if his mum hadn't said, no, get that surgeon. And the guy who was interviewing him, he's like, your mum saved your career in that one phone call. And, and you know, that's another thing God really spoke to me. He said, it's not just about saving your life, it's about saving your calling. It's saying, no, if you need to be, have a face that can be put on screen, I will ensure a top surgeon comes and does the stitches. Because God's saying, I'm going to send you with a bat belt. I'm going to send you with what you need for that moment. I'm not going to send you in alone. And, you know, like the bat belt's like a funny example because, you know, let's be honest, when bat, when Batman reveals he has a shark repellent spray, you kind of know a shark's going to attack him this episode. Um, <laughs> but a good and skillful screenwriter will be writing a setup very subtly so you're not aware it's a setup. You know, they will be doing it without anyone knowing and one method for doing this is a fantastic um, technique which is Pope in the pool and again I don't know hands up who's ever heard of Pope in the pool Um, I love this phrase and I use it all the time now I'm like that's a Pope in the pool Um, so Pope in the pool is again it's from Save the Cat and the guy um, Blake Snyder said that he was watching a movie once where these generals were having to give an update to the Pope um, in the Vatican about a war and how things were taking place. And he said rather than just having it take place in an office, he said they actually had the scene take place by the Vatican's pool. And what Pope in the pool is, is this. Pope in the pool is strategically having something in the scene which will take your attention. So I could see all of you one by one stopped looking at me and started watching this guy over here because he was a Pope in the pool. He was something which looked interesting, which looked confusing, which looked dangerous and intriguing. And so you start watching the Pope in the pool and you forget about what's happening over here. And that now you can go. This is dangerous getting up on stage. Thank you, Pope. Thank you. Thank you. If we need, we need any more popes in the pool, I'm happy to come off at any time. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pope. Pope's for high. <laughs> pope's for high. Well done. Um, so this is literally showing you what a pope in the pool is, is that I want to do something over here. I want to have a character have spray-on shoes, but I don't want you to be watching the spray-on shoes, so I'm going to bring a pope in the pool... I'm going to bring a little bully who's going to laugh at him. So you start watching the bully. Think, oh, this poor kid, he's getting laughed at. No, no, it's actually so you are not watching the setup. Yeah. Over here, I am setting up the victory. Over here is where your attention is. You are focusing on a Pope in the Pool. So that is what Pope in the Pool is. And I'm going to show you one of my favorite Pope in the Pool examples, and it's from the movie Oceans 11. And the backstory of this film is that there is a heist that's going to take place. And at the start of the movie, you meet the team that's going to take place in this heist. So each character gets like a 10 to 60 second clip for their meet the team. These are the guys who are going to take the heist. So if you turn your attention to the screen.
1: Boys yesterday. Mormon twins? Mm. They're both in Salt Lake City, six months off the job. Got the sense they're having trouble filling the hours. Just waiting. Go. Waiting for you. Go, little girl. You're like a little girl. Just do this all day. I'm going to get out of the car and I'm going to drop you like third period French, okay? Stop talking. Go. Uh... Was yesterday.
0: Um, I love that scene. I just feel like it's fantastic. And you know, I watched that scene and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I love these characters already. I get it. They're competitive, they're funny, they're immature. I get them." But in reality, those brothers and their competitive spirits are actually just popes in the pool. Because that entire scene is not actually about the brothers. The entire scene is actually about the remote control car, the remote control car that they were driving. That entire scene is showing you these brothers have a remote control car. And that is something which you subconsciously think, oh, yeah, whatever. These brothers are hilarious. But if we go to the next screen, at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, they take the heist, there's a big car chase, they follow the car, the car explodes. Oh, my goodness, what's happened? And then you see the brothers with their remote. And you realize they've used a remote control car as a decoy so that they can escape with the money. And in that moment, you realize, I have just been set up. So this entire time, yes, of course, they're going to use a decoy car because these brothers use remote control cars. And so that is what a pope in the pool does, is that it sets up a weapon, but so subtly that you are completely oblivious to how significant this scene is. And yet that's how a skillful screenwriter would do it. And, you know, one of the reasons that's so important is because when you get given a script by a master, like someone like Aaron Sorkin gives you a script, you don't then ad lib it because you realize everything is very planned. Everything is very intentional. You know, you get a movie like a Hallmark Movies, which I love, but, you know, they say Hallmark Movies, the actors can very much ad lib. They can, you know, they can go off script and they said, it's fine. They said, that's kind of what, That's the level it's at is that you just trust your actors to make the scene something special. If you get given an Aaron Sorkin script, if there is a comma, you take a breath. They said you follow his punctuation, you follow his words, you do not ad-lib. If he says you drink your coffee, you drink your coffee. You do what he says. And it's not because it's like, oh, he's so controlling. It's because that comma could actually be a setup. You have no idea what is a setup in an Aaron Sorkin script because it is so subtle. It is so masterfully crafted. And, you know, I'd love to look at a Bible example for this Pope in the Pool technique. And it's from Acts 15. Um, So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just speed read to you where we are in this situation. Um, So in verse 15, it says that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big debate that's about to take place. Um, This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate. They're appointed, along with some others, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Okay, so everyone's focus right now is on this big debate which is taking place between the believers, do you need to be circumcised or not? Um, this whole assembly became silent as they listened to them. Um, okay, so then we just drop down to verse 22 when it says, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. Okay, so this whole thing happens and the whole focus is on the debate, do you need to be circumcised to be saved? That is what our focus is on reading. That is what the bay in the story, that's what their focus was on, was this debate. Do we need to be circumcised? And it's, it's a relevant debate. They are saying, okay, what's happening? Where do we stand? Who do we stand with? Um, but in verse 22, a very simple phrase is said where it says, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decide to send some of their own men, send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas and Silas, men who are leaders among the believers. There's simple words and Silas. Yeah, so good. Two simple words that just come and go during this entire situation, this entire debate. But Silas went on to become such a crucial member of the New Testament. He became such a crucial weapon yeah. in the New Testament. You think about all the stories where it's Paul and Silas. Silas was introduced whilst a pope in the pool of a debate about circumcision had everyone's focus. Everyone was focused here, but God's focus was saying, hey, I'm going to introduce Silas, and he is going to be a crucial weapon for you in the future. And I'd love us to, um, we've got some papers to hand out. And this is something that God really spoke to me about a while ago, and he got me to do a pope in the pool refocus for my life, which was basically looking at my life and writing down what God is actually doing in the scene. It's not looking at the Pope in the pool. It's not looking what has my um, attention, but it's specifically looking at what is God actually setting up. Yeah. You know, there could be the Pope in the pool of health battles or deadlines at work or gossipers at work or the, iconic, you know, the um, economic situation. And I am focusing on it, but then God really said, stop and purposely write, what I am doing in this scene? What am I writing in this scene? You know, a phrase is said, a good setup will be decised as insignificant. The audience will be focusing on another aspect of the scene, but for Pope in the Pool, you deliberately have something take their attention while speeding them the crucial information. And God really spoke to me. He said, in May of 2023, he said, I gave you a Chekhov's gun. I gave you a weapon that would be crucial your victory in 2023 and 2024 and for the rest of your life and that was when Dr Jerry Seville came and not only did he came but he gave our church an impartation of favor and you know the Ocean's 11 scene the scene of the brothers is an amazing scene it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie but the crucial element was the remote control car and God said to me this phrase he said what if Dr. Seville's visit was one of the best scenes in 2023? But the most vital element was setting up an impartation of favor that would open doors in 2024 for you, your family, and your church. Amen. It was suddenly saying, "A, the visit could actually take all my attention, and I miss what God imparted in that scene. Really good. Good. And I, ch- I challenge you, to when we re-listen to these message and re-watch it, to start looking not just at how amazing, and it was was a dream come true for me to have him preaching in our church. But God said, but you must recognize what was imparted in that scene, what element. And, you know, as we begin to approach the end of this screenwriting seminar, um, there's one more thing that I'd love to leave with you, and it's another screenwriting technique. And in Save the Cat, um, he doesn't just talk about the three acts, but he then expands it to actually tell you, you know, the beats that need to happen in each act. And there's an act at the end of, um, at the end of Act 2, which, is, remember, that's when you throw rocks at your hero in the tree, um, and it's called The Dark Night of the Soul. Yeah. And that is the scene when all seems lost. It's the scene when it looks as though victory is beyond their reach and defeat is inevitable. You know, in, in they actually says, the writer says that, you know, often there'll be a scent of death in those scenes. It could be a character dies, like, you know, in Avatar 2, the sun dies, in Knives Out, a maid dies, in Avengers, Colson dies. But it can also be a metaphorical death where, you know, in Greater Sherman, the circus burns down. In High School Musical 1, 2 and 3, Gabriella and Troy break up. In Paw Patrol... Mayor Humding is cloud catcher overloads. In La Land, Mia's dream dies. In La Land, Mia's dream dies. And you know, God spoke to me so strongly when I was typing my notes and I was just like rattling off movies on the top of my head, and I wrote that one down. And God said to me, He said, A dream can die in an all-is-lost scene. And he said, A calling of God can die when you are at the end of Act Two. When all seems lost, that is when the devil will try to kill your calling. It will try to kill your dream yeah. because he knows that you are vulnerable in an all is lost scene. Yeah. And in La La Land, you know, Mia, she's dreamed of being an actress her whole life. She And then finally, she gets a call to say she's got the audition of a lifetime. And she tells her, her soulmate, Sebastian, that she's not going to go. And he's like, why? This is what you've waited for. And she says a phrase and she says, Because it hurts just a little too much. She's like, I've been to audition after audition after audition. She's like, it just hurts a little too much to put myself out there again. And God spoke to me. He's like, you know, that's how you can feel when it's all is lost. You can feel like I don't want to pray another prayer. I don't want to give again. I don't want to sow another seed. I don't want to make another vision board. Because it hurts a little too much right now to actually take another step. But, you know, at the end of Act 2... It's also the start of Act 3. It's the start of your finale. It's the start of the payoff for everything that has been set up. And in La La Land, she breaks into Act 3 and she gets the role. In Avatar 2, they win the battle. In Knives Out, they find the killer. In Avengers, they save Earth. In Greatest Showman, they start the circus under a big tent. In High School Musical 1, 2 and 3, Gabriella and Troy get back together. In Paw Patrol, they save Adventure City because Act 3 is where you get a payoff. Yeah. Act 3 is where you see everything has been leading to this moment. Yeah, Act 3 good. is when a miracle takes place. Act 3 is when we experience our breakthrough. Yeah. But we only get to Act 3 if we push through Dark Night of the Soul. Yeah, we good. only get to Act 3 if we keep reading the script, if we keep yeah. taking steps. So good. And, you know, I'd love to put this photo up. This is a photo from January 2017. And this is a photo my sister put up on Facebook saying, we hear someone else moved into their new home today. It's a fantastic Facebook post. Everyone's so happy. Look at those photos of everyone so happy as she moved into a new house. But you know, there's one person who's not in those photos, and that is me. And that is because I was in an all-is-lost scene. Because I had injured my knee like four or five months earlier. And it was meant to be an eight-week rehabilitation. Very common. It was, yep, fine, just do these exercises. Eight weeks will be better. It was now like four months later and my knee had not improved. It's not just a, my knee wasn't better. It was a, I was still at step one. And that day, my knee had seized up to the point where I couldn't stand. I couldn't walk. Let alone could I help them move. And so I got dropped off at our house so that they could continue moving. And so I was home by myself feeling so low because I was like, God, what is wrong with me? Why is my knee not recovering? And you know, I'd be so frustrated because the physio actually told me, he's like, I've never had a client who actually does every exercise I give them. And he said, and he was sort of laughing. He's like, you're the only person who ever actually follows everything we tell you to do. Yet you're the one client your knee's not getting better. And I was like, that's not helping. I'm like, why, why am I that one in a million case where I'm not getting better? And I sat there that day being feeling like God was so far away. I'm like, God, I don't know what else to do. I am praying. I am believing. I am doing everything the physios tell me. Why are you so distant right now? And in that moment, I just felt so sad and so discouraged and so so down that I said to God I'm like I just need something which is like a warm coat it's like a hug it's like a a tub of ice cream and so I went online and I found this cheesy cheesy g-rated chick flick which had a happy ending it was a stupid film terrible script terrible acting it was pathetic but it had a happy ending and right now that was all I needed I just need something to make me feel better And that movie was something which I didn't know, but it was called A Hallmark. And I'd never heard of Hallmarks before that moment. But in that moment, I watched A Hallmark. And even though that one was pretty terrible, I started watching more and I found, oh, some of them aren't quite as terrible as that one. And then a few years later, my knee had fully recovered because God did a miracle. But I was still watching Hallmarks because we really liked watching clean chick flicks. And we watched a series called Mystery 101, which we really enjoyed. And that series an actor called Christopher Palaha. And I really liked his acting, so we watched all his movies and found out he's a strong Christian. And then in 2021, he did an acting course for Christians, which I participated in. And because of that, I got to know him. We contacted him. He then preached, you know, virtually preached at our church last December. And not only that, but then the day after I preached Movie Sunday last December, I was speaking to him and he was asking, how did the sermon go? And he told me to read this book. He said, I think you need to read a book called Save the Cat. Because I read that book, we are having this sermon today. But you know what? I wouldn't be preaching to you, push through Dark Night of the Soul, if I didn't read this book. I wouldn't have read this book if I hadn't connected with Christopher Palaha. I wouldn't have connected with him if I hadn't started watching Hallmarks. I wouldn't have started watching Hallmarks if it wasn't for that day when I just needed a pick-me-up movie. He would not have been in a Hallmark movie if he hadn't worn that jacket 27 years ago. All of these things are God setting up. And even in a moment when I felt like God was so far away, I didn't realize God was actually setting up my breakthrough. God was actually like, hey, don't worry about your knee. That's a Pope in the pool. It will be okay. But right now the most vital thing is this cheesy movie because this cheesy movie is gonna have an impact in your future. Your mentor is gonna come because you're watching a cheesy movie. Your knee is a pope in the pool. Get your focus away from it. And now when I look back at that day, I don't think of it in terms of my knee. I think of it in terms of, that was the day this entire mentorship began because God set up a miracle. In a moment when I felt like God was so far away, God was actually controlling my Netflix. God was so close when I felt like He wasn't hearing me. He's like, I am hearing you. I'm actually setting you up. And I really want to encourage you that I've been praying so much and this concept kept coming up in my heart even this morning when He said, when you've seen Act 3, you redefine Act 1. Because when you've seen what happens in Act 3, when your knee is fully recovered and you've now got a mentor, from a Hallmark movie. You now define that scene by watching a Hallmark. But in the moment, all I could see was a Pope in the pool of my knee. That's all I could see. And I felt God say that there are people here today and you feel like this season of your life will be defined by lack. It will be defined by a health crisis. It will be defined by a situation. But God's saying when you're in act three, you will redefine that moment. Because you will see what God is doing. You will see that God was always working. God was always setting up. God was always writing your story. And your story does not have to be defined by that dark night of the soul. Dark night of the soul with God can become the greatest setup you've ever known. You know, just yesterday I was speaking to Chris Belaha and he said, he's like, who would have thought 27 years ago I was going to survive an explosion that would have an impact on the faith of a woman in Australia who would then share it with her church. He's like, who would have thought 27 years ago that day when I felt like everything had gone, you know, fallen apart, God was setting it up so you today could have your faith encouraged. That is how good God is. That is what a master screenwriter is. So I encourage you, I invite you to stand in this moment and we're just going to spend a few minutes worshipping God Praising him that he is faithful to be writing our story. And I just encourage you that maybe you feel like you are living at such an insignificant scene. Maybe you feel like this season nothing is happening, Who, no one's writing the story. No, that's when a master is setting you up. An insignificant scene in the hands of a, a master becomes the greatest setups. Maybe you feel like all is lost and it's not just the scent of death, I'm seeing death. And God's saying, no, in the hands of a master, that becomes your setup. It does not matter what Pope in the pool has got your focus right now. There is a master screenwriter who is writing your story, who is writing this church's story, who is writing this nation's story. But we need to give him the pen. We can't be scribbling over a script and then expect to live in his payoff. If you add lib, you can't expect to be in the payoff. You can't tear out pages and say, no, this page is too hard. It's saying, no, you have to live out the script. You have to give every scene over to me. You have to say, God, this is your story. You have to trust him as your screenwriter if you want to live in the payoffs. So I invite the band to sing this song now. And I just encourage you to respond in your heart. If you want prayer, please come out. But otherwise, just respond in your heart and say, God, I am trusting you to be writing my story. Thank you guys.